Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gives you inside access to how retail real estate's most successful leaders went from being an average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at CM for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. To flip or to hold, to lease or to buy, to be a tough negotiator or quite the people pleaser. One thing we can all agree upon in our business is that retail commercial real estate has some serious personalities. I'll be the first to admit, I'm not exactly the shy guy in the corner. And as a result, some people just don't like me. I mean, anybody who has the audacity to start a podcast about commercial real estate is quite the egomaniac. Jeez. My point is that it's rare that you find someone who everyone in our business likes. With Nate Omi, who heads up the real estate efforts for Great Clips 4,000 international stores, we've found that unicorn that everyone likes. With his humble personality stemming from his Midwestern roots, Nate modestly tells his story on how he rose to the head of real estate at an industry-leading retailer in less than a decade's time. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nate as much as I did. So here it is. Hey, everyone. Super pumped to have Nate Omi with Great Clips, who is their director of real estate on the podcast. Nate, how's it going? It's going great. Good. Let's jump right in. Tell us about your upbringing. What was Nate like as a little kid? Did you have brothers and sisters? Where are you from? Give us the whole dynamic and background. Sure. So yeah, I got brothers and sisters. I'm actually middle child of three. So I've got an older sister who's about three years older and a younger brother who's about three years older. So I am the, I guess, the definition of a middle child. I'm a people pleaser trying to make friends on both sides and competitive by nature and love big families and love my family and still a very close group, but very competitive, played a lot of sports. Uh, my dad was a coach of dozens and dozens of teams over the years. So I was fortunate to, to have that influence in my life and try and do the same now with my family. Nice. And where'd you grow up? Right here. I, so I'm based in Minneapolis and I grew up in Bloomington and I still live in Bloomington. I moved away for a couple of years, but back in Bloomington and only, only about two miles from where I grew up. That's amazing. And were you a good student growing up? No, not really. Not really. My sister was very, again, firstborn type A. She did very well. My parents didn't have to concern themselves with paying attention to what she was doing. And uh, I think they hoped that the same would apply to me. And so I just kind of, I did enough to get by, but no, was not a devoted student by any means. As I always like to tell myself and therefore other people to make myself feel better about my academic performance, commercial real estate is the best thing that ever happened to the BNC student. You got that right. Yep. There you go. So you talked about being involved in sports and some extracurriculars, being competitive. I assume that's translation quite a bit toward your success now in the business. Tell us more about what competition and, and playing in sports and anything else that you may have done as a kid that sort of has translated over in your professional career in our business. Sure. The two biggest things that jump out right away, just being on a team. I still don't love individual sports. I play a lot of golf, but I like playing team golf a lot more than I like playing my own ball and keeping track of my own score. So I've always been a team guy, played a lot of basketball and then other sports where it was a team deal. I I like practicing with other guys. I like, I just like the team dynamic, especially 
And then just that work ethic of grinding. I was not a gifted athlete by any means, but because I was in there working out a lot and practiced a lot, I got to have a, a decent athletic career really because of it. So those two things are definitely my, my big takeaways. Sure. You just mentioned that your dad coached a lot of sports. I assume coaching some of your teams. What, tell us about your parents. What was that like? How did they bring you up? Yeah. Yeah. So kind of an interesting dynamic. My mom was the main career person in the house. Uh, my dad had a career too, but his job had the flexibility to coach and do. He worked so he could do other things in his life. Uh, whereas my mom was the, she was the career go-getter. I uh, was always advancing and traveling and doing things. My dad's job provided him the flexibility to coach five, six teams at a time. And so he was always doing that and the job was always second. So kind of unique experience in that way where, you know, my mom in the early nineties was all, even late eighties, early nineties was all business and professional. And she still came to everything and, and was there, but did a lot of travel and was always deep in business. What did your parents do or what do they do? Both retired now. They were both in insurance. My dad was a small group broker for insurance benefits. And my mom worked for a large insurance provider on the disability side. So she was in operations for a, a large insurance company. Gotcha. So I got to ask, how the hell did you end up in commercial real estate with two parents and an insurance background? No idea. I got out of college and thought I was going to go coach or somehow be involved in sports. And I was fortunate enough to have a family friend that was high up with the Timberwolves. And he let me do a couple of things my first summer out and then met with him a few times. And he, he laid it out for me that if this was the career I wanted to go into, that was great. But I should expect to make about anywhere from eighteen to $22,000 a year for the first few years, work about 70 hours a week, be there on the nights and weekends, and really have about a 20% chance of ever advancing because it was so competitive in that marketing, coaching, sports world. It's just people were willing to, to donate their time in a lot of ways to be a part of organizations. I looked at it and said, that's not what I want to do. I would rather go get a job and do some, whether it's my kids or coach high school or whatever. And so I stepped away from that and just did some youth coaching and doing some odd jobs until I realized I needed something more significant. And really, I applied for my first job because it was close to my house. And as I was looking at things, I worked for Regis Corporation for about nine years and I lived probably again, about two, three miles from that corporate office. And that was my original reason for applying there. I definitely want to get into that part of the story, but you mentioned college. Where did you go? How did you end up there? I went to Concordia Moorhead. So for those that don't know, one of the greatest mascots in all sports, I was a cobber. A what? I'm sorry? It's a C-O-B-B-E-R. It's an ear of corn. So every year ESPN does their mascot rankings and we're typically in the top five, if not the top couple, for best mascots in the country, the Concordia Cobbers. Fear the ear, as we say. <laughs> it's a small liberal arts division three. I went there to play basketball. That is why I ended up in the, in the great north. Gotcha. That context certainly helps. And I, the reason why I asked is I thought that may have been the case. And it turns out, while you were the first Cobber that we've had so far on the Limitless podcast, I can rule out the idea that we'll never have another one, but I suspect it might be a while. I will say you were definitely not the first college athlete. We've had quite a theme of that 
on the show. And I think that stems from having a relentless work ethic, the ability to stomach consistent training or consistent in brokerage case, you know, hearing no over and over, or on the retailer side of having a diligent process and understanding that it takes a team environment in order to be successful. So whether it's Chris Ressa who wrestled in college or Chris Sands who actually played professional tennis or I know Brian Finnegan played college basketball. We've had a lot of athletes on the show. So I'm not totally surprised to hear that, but I did not know that about you. So that, that's awesome to hear. So you obviously grew up loving sports. You were coached by your dad who was involved. You played basketball in college. You probably did the same thing that I did, which was you were told, go do what you love and follow that passion. I actually grew up loving sports myself, interned at a sports agency. The owner of the sports agency said, this is not the path to go if you want to make a lot of money, which is ironic because clearly you got the same advice. He said, man, you need to explore commercial real estate or franchising. That's what he told me. And it turns out I didn't necessarily take his advice directly like from the day that he told it to me. But it turns out those are the two things I've ultimately ended up doing in my career. And it sounds like somebody gave you some sort of similar advice of maybe what not to do. And I'd love to hear how that transition occurred into real estate. I know you said you applied to Regis based on proximity to your house. Was it a real estate job that you started with there? Or what's the background there? Nope. I actually applied for an operations job, an operations coordinator or, or something along those lines. And in my initial meeting with their HR, just to do some background stuff, uh, had a good conversation and they ultimately said, you know what, we've got an opening in real estate. Is that anything you'd be interested in as well? And I said, sure. I had no idea. So I went and met and actually met some of the people right out of the gates that I ended up working with for about nine years. And just dumb luck that the opportunity was available. They hired me to be a coordinator and to do some mapping. And so got to work with a number of real estate directors and some other people and doing stuff for all over the country from a mapping perspective, and then did some support work for a couple of those guys and was very fortunate to get with some very sharp people right out of the gates. And I would say it took me about two years to realize that there was a lot to this industry. I was sort of in a bubble for a little while, but then started traveling and going to some shows and whatnot and met some other great people. And so about two years into it, I was like, okay, this is something, there's more to this. And I could see myself being involved with this for a lot of years. Great. Well, I'm glad that you tripped into it because at least I've made a friend out of it. And I know you've had a lot of success. So it's a cool background. You know, it's so funny, like, it's almost like no two stories of getting into this business are the same, unless if you had parents that grew up in it. That's why I always love asking that question. That being said, I got to ask, especially as you started getting into, as you evolved from doing research and mapping, and I assume you got into deal-making at Regis at some point. Yep. How how long did it take before that happened? How long were you in mapping before you went to deal-making? It was probably, I'm going to say three or four years. Okay. Yeah. It was really until I started doing lease renewals where we just had a lot of corporate stores. So we had a lease rental team and then started doing that. Any embarrassing stories from when you first started doing deal making or at any point in your career that you could share? Well, when you first get into it, you're so naive. You don't, I'm sure I asked a lot of stupid questions and said a lot of stupid things on site tours and whatnot, because you just, you don't know. And I was around, but luckily I had some guys that are still in the business. I can mention Jeff Morrow, Josh Gardner, Allison Cherney, people like that, that took me under their wing and forced me to, hey, you need to come on the road. You need to come, come do some things that, again, I didn't know what I was doing. And they pressed the issue to get me out there and kind of put me under their wings and yeah, really helped me out. 
talk about the value of mentorship. It sounds like you just named some of those people. Who are some of your other mentors or maybe some of the lessons that you learned from the existing mentors that you met that you mentioned before? Yeah. So like that, that whole team that I originally worked with, they were great. Uh, there's others I could keep going over there that were great. But then being in the, the franchise business, the people that I could see that were, they were deal makers, but they were, they were really good franchisee consultants at the same time as well. Those are the people that I really kind of, I learned a lot from. Uh, it's it's kind of two different worlds. There's the corporate real estate world, then there's the franchising world of it. And for those that are in both, you can understand and appreciate the difference between being a deal maker, but then also working with franchisees because it's you really have to you have to know two different worlds and being able to, to communicate and slow down and take the time to respect and do what the franchisees need you to do. So Marlene Oberste was great here at Great Clips. She's out of the business now. Paul Gadera, who's still in the business, he's with Caribou. I still get together with Paul probably once a quarter to have lunch, talk about things. So yeah, people like that, that truly get the people side of the business is, is who I think. When you got into the, when I say the business, I mean, specifically commercial real estate. I know you applied to Regis originally as an operations person, got in on real estate. You start doing some mapping. You get into a deal maker role about three or four years in. At what point did you know that this was what you wanted to do, meaning where you are today, heading up a team of real estate managers across the country for prominent retailer like Great Clubs? Might have been my first Vegas ICSC where I was like, okay, I can do this. It was back when the parties were, they were huge. The dinners were huge. I went out there and saw everything that was going on and was just completely blown away by the size of the industry and all the different roles and, and getting to meet the brokers from around the country. That was my first aha moment where it's like, what is going on here? I can get into this. And that's when you knew you wanted to be somebody, you wanted to be a head of real estate or similar within a retailer. Yeah. And that, after my run at Regis, I was laid off as a part of a, a big wave of people. And I, at that point, the first time where I got to sit back and say, what do I really want to do? And met with a number of people locally in the commercial industry, real estate industry, to explore some options and try and get some direction. And I just kept coming back to this. There were some other opportunities and things that, that I looked at, and I just kept coming back to this industry. And I'm obviously very glad that I did. So you had that opportunity to soul search, and it leads you from Regis to Great Clips, obviously. When you did the soul searching, yeah, from an outsider's view, it doesn't look like you needed to search too far. It felt like you were able to identify what you wanted to do and what you were doing was something that you liked. I mean, not only did you stay on the retailer side, and not only did you stay up in the Twin Cities, you went to a competitor, right? Did, did they reach out to you or did you reach out to them? And what was that decision process like for you? Did you ever contemplate like, man, do I really want to branch out? Or did you know you were in the right space? You just needed to find the right fit. Sure. So it was actually... Paul Gadera, who I mentioned, is at Caribou now. He's the one. He was the real estate director here at the time. And he's who first reached out to me and said, hey, you want to grab lunch? And obviously things evolved. But I thought about, do I want to stay in the hair business? There were some, I don't remember what they were, but some other opportunities that I was looking at to get into a different, they were all small shop tenants, but to get into a, a different concept. And ultimately, the situation and the people at Great Clips seemed like such a good fit that it was too hard not to say no. My interactions with the people, some of which are still here today, 
were great right out of the gates and just something about it just felt right right from the start and when you got in with great clips what was your territory what was your role it's pretty small territory to start i took over the greater toronto area upstate new york and something else that lasted about two weeks and then someone actually put in their notice that they were leaving and i started doing the east coast so I came in to do kind of a small territory, and then within two weeks, I took over the East Coast and ultimately moved out to North Carolina and did the East Coast work for us for about a year. Wow. Yeah. Keep going. I know you're not very good at showing off how wonderful your story is, but we do. I think everybody wants to know the evolution of what happens next. So keep telling us the story and how your role continues to expand and how we arrived to where we are today. Sure. I moved out there in October. And it was like January, it was right before the Charlotte ICSE. And I want to say that was about February when I got a call that the Minneapolis territory was opening up. And so although I had planned to be out in North Carolina for two, three, four years, the lady here, Marlene, who I mentioned, had been here for 20 plus years. She decided that she was going to retire. And they gave me a first shot at it to come back home and take on the Midwest, which We've been here for a long time, but a lot of... Wait, had you moved at one point? Had you left Minneapolis? Yeah, we were living in Raleigh. Yep. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yep. Yep. Lived in South End of Raleigh, and, but ultimately only ended up living there for about seven months. Really, we were just snowbirds for a year. <laughs> no, there was boxes we never unpacked. So it was a quick... It was great, but uh, I love Raleigh. But yeah, it was a quick run. Came back here, took over the Midwest. And then you started adding on some responsibilities as we went. So started a portfolio review program, working with that group, started working with some junior real estate reps to do some internal brokerage work, and then took over this seat about three years ago now, three and a half years ago, something like that. Got it. And because you're really bad about bragging about yourself, that seat today is defined as overseeing all the real estate efforts across the country for great clubs. Yep. Yep. The US and Canada. And how many stores do you guys have? We have, let's say, 4,400 and change. Yeah. So you're overseeing the real estate for 4,400 stores. And a company that you started with not that long ago, and I mean, 10 years certainly is not a short amount of time, but to go from taking starting day one with a little bit of upstate New York and Toronto and maybe one other small pocket to overseeing the efforts of all 4,400 stores is quite the climb. And obviously, there was some sort of sign there when the person, when you already picked up more territory two weeks after you started. And the willingness to move, I'm sure, probably demonstrated a lot to the company. I mean, what ultimately did that for you guys? I mean, it sounds like you were prepared to be in Raleigh for a long time. You got the call, it was fate, and it worked out that way. But talk to our listeners a little bit about that, the willingness to move and relocate, because that's also been a theme for successful people that have joined us on the show. What was offered to you to get you to do that? And I don't mean financially, like the opportunity and what ultimately led you to saying yes to that? Timing has a lot to do with it, right? It's got to be the right point in your career that your family, your spouse, everything that goes into it needs to come together. So I look back and right now, it'd be very hard to move and to pick up. My kids were the right age. They were one and three at the time. So it's not like we were pulling them out of school. My Parents had flexibility to travel, my in-laws flexibility to travel and help out. And so really it's, you just sort of get lucky. And I feel like I get really lucky with the timing of everything and the support. And then knowing the territory, it was a territory that I had handled for years and knew the brokers, knew the players. And so it wasn't starting all over. If the territory had been California, 
I don't think I could have done it. Or Texas, I don't think I could have done it. But the fact that it was, I had worked the Southeast for Regis for a lot of years. And so knew, knew people and felt very comfortable with it. Obviously, the climate didn't hurt. Moving from Minneapolis to Raleigh for seven months, I'll take that any day. But for me, it's you just sort of got to get lucky. You work hard to get lucky that the right opportunity will present itself. What do you feel like was the big break in your career? Was it the call to move back to Minneapolis after Raleigh, or was it getting in with uh, excuse me, getting in with great clubs from Regis in the first place? Like, what do you, what do you, if you had to divine like that big break opportunity in your career, which one would it be, and why? <sighs> There's no one thing. It's in this industry, it's the connections, it's the relationships, because I can think of a dozen different people that I could say had a big influence on me being in this seat today, and you don't know where that's going to come from, when it's going to pop up, what the timing is going to be. Obviously, the market ebbs and flows, and you got to be in the right position at the right time when things ramp up. And I felt like getting into it when I did, at the, I got into it prior to 2006. And then so I got to experience some of the good times, but then saw that dip and was in a position that I could hang on to my job through that dip and then got to see it grow for a lot of years coming out of that. And so Again, if I come out of school two years later, maybe I'm not, that department's not hiring like they were at the time. And with Ray Clips, the same thing. If I'm not let go from Regis at the time I'm let go, when they're making a transition and they're growing and Paul's there. So you just never know. Uh, that's why you always call everyone back and you always make those connections as much as you can because you just never know. It's funny that you said call everybody back. And the first thought that I had while you were speaking is, I think you're the most humble guest that we've had in what will be or soon to be our third season of doing this. And then you mentioned something like, yeah, just you know, working hard, getting lucky, just quintessential Midwestern guy who's, made, who's done very well, who couldn't be any more humble about it. Then you mentioned you know, calling people back, which we've had other retailers that have made it to the level that you're at, some even in, in C-level suites with publicly traded companies, whatever. And they've all cited that on the retailer side. I find that I wanted to, I don't really have a follow-up question to that, but I think it's important that for anybody who's listening to this, that's whether they're on the retailer side, because you guys are the pretty girl in the room, if you will, metaphorically speaking, I would attribute the little success that we have had so far at Zig to returning every investment sales broker's call. And the success that you're having as the head of real estate in a prominent company like Great Clips calling everybody back. It's funny how those things work out when you don't need people when they're working their way up the ladder as bad as we may think we need them. But those who kind of put in the time and effort to those people, it, it seems to certainly pay off and you build relationships with them. And I can't tell you how many deals we've bought from brokers that you know I probably cultivated the relationship just by returning their call because they cold called me on a site that we own that we wouldn't sell. Or they returned a call from me on a deal that we were nowhere near point where we needed to be on pricing. And so I don't know. I don't think anybody's above anybody in this business. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. And I, I certainly appreciate that. So we've talked about how wonderful you are and how humble you are. What are Nate's weaknesses and how do you navigate them? Uh, saying no is a tough one for me that I've had to deal with, especially as you take on more responsibilities and be able to, I don't know if I'm overly confident in ideas and in finding ways to get things done. and it was really coming into this seat, a lot of direct reports and trying to balance and manage time and being able to say that I just can't do things has been tough. I think part of the reason I, I was good at 
being a deal maker and working with franchisees is because I do want to please people and provide support for them. But then you get into situations where you just can't do it all and you've got to prioritize. And so I still read a lot and uh, try and find ways that I can better use my time and be more efficient and just focusing on what the priorities are. So you must have listened to this podcast before because you know that I asked about reading. And you know, or even if you don't, I appreciate the fact that you did. You can tell me that you listen to the podcast and make me feel better about myself. Talk to me about one book or a few books that have changed your life or career. And so first off, I'm terrible at remembering names and authors of books. But the two that I've read recently that come to mind, I read the Chipotle book, Love is Free, Guac is Extra. And I'm completely blanking on his name right now. Steve Ells, the founder, is that who wrote it? No, not the founder. The gentleman who was CEO for a lot of years. Okay. Fabulous book. Great leadership book just on how to lead and connecting with people and prioritizing and having very direct conversations, moving people in and out of your team, your organization. That's a fabulous book. And then I just finished a book called 4,000 Weeks. And again, couldn't tell you the name of the author, but 4,000 Weeks, all about spending your time. It sounds a little depressing when you think that the premise is we each have about 4,000 weeks. If you live till you're 80, you've got about 4,000 weeks and breaks down really how to utilize it and not be more efficient because there's a lot of ways you can be more efficient and it just creates more work for yourself, but really how to enjoy the things you're doing and prioritize and focus on those. Love that. And like we do with all other book suggestions, we'll make sure to get those on the Zucker Investment Group website. And I'm also going to download and and read and listen to those books. Thank you for sharing those. Sure. What's the biggest curveball of your career that's been thrown at you? Biggest curveball. Hey, we were just talking about this recently. It's you work with a lot of people and not everyone's going to like you. And again, being in the franchise world, we've got 1,100 franchisees. Okay. So we make decisions every day that impact their livelihood. And we have to come to the, we have to accept that some of our franchisees, just like some of our, our landlords, some of our brokers, there's things that will happen and you do everything you can to do things the right way. And people still aren't going to like you. And they're still going to hold a grudge and they're still going to be upset. And they're still going to feel like you did not do what you should have done. And when you first get into it, it's frustrating and you want to make things right and you want to fix them. You want to have the conversations and you want the feedback and it's not always going to play itself out that way. And you just have to learn to accept that as long as you know you're doing things the right way, it's all you can do and you can sleep well at night. It's still going to piss you off and it's going to bother you, but you can't let it eat you up because you got to move on. And so that's, especially as you move up in a franchise or company, that could be a challenge. And we were just talking about it last week with some promotions here internally. And it can be very frustrating, but you got to find ways to get over it. So funny. It's so fitting that you answered that question the way you did. Because without a doubt, I mean, your career on paper looks like there's one glaring curveball, right? You were laid off in the height of the recession by an employer that was close to your house. You probably had a lot of comfortability there. And you don't even hesitate to answer the question in a completely different way. And it's about other people and your answer, which is very fitting as I've gotten here over the years that you would answer it that way. But it seems glaringly obvious like, oh yeah, but I lost my job. You didn't even go that route. 
And it's also funny that I was thinking about when you answered that question, dichotomy, because I'm like, okay, you're just like the nicest guy in the world. Like this guy probably has everybody like him. But the other side of me saying, I'm a franchisee with obviously with a different brand. And yeah, the franchisor does make difficult decisions on an ongoing basis. And as a franchisee, I can speak loud and freely about it. And would hear if the franchisor was sitting on this call or listening to this podcast, would certainly say that there's times where we don't love what they do and they have to make those tough decisions and live with that. But as a people pleaser, middle child, I know that probably carries a lot of weight on you. And I love that you, that was so very middle child, which is why I asked those questions at the beginning to be like, I'm fine. I'll figure it out. Don't worry if I lose my job. But if you don't like me, we got a problem. That makes me... Right, right, right. I thought that was pretty cool. This is a really loaded question because it's not like you're at... You know, We've had Ted Frumkin, who's heading up the growth and development for the fresh market right now and came from big box retailers like Staples and Office Depot and Sprouts. Sprouts. They're not doing a billion deals. You've done a billion deals. I mean, you don't even remember... I mean, you could probably look at your deal sheet and not even remember the negotiations on some of those deals. So with that being said, I'm going to ask you the most difficult question you've been asked so far, probably on this podcast. What is the craziest deal you have ever worked on? The craziest one? Well, when I first... I wish you guys could see what was made. I know this is a podcast. We're going to have to pull back the, the visual version of this because this face when I asked and the question was great. So I had to say that before you went into the story, but go ahead. No, so... Being that we're privately held and we're a family-owned company, and our chairman of the board, our primary owner, was heavily involved in real estate, and for a lot of years was obviously he ran the real estate department as they were growing. It was a very small company then, still, still takes a very active role. And I can share this because he's the relationship guy, deal guy. And when I first came over, first made the transition to the Midwest, he was getting involved with a, a local developer who was in another state as well. But because of their relationship, he said that we would, we would pay rent for the entire space if they developed it, for the entire building if they developed it as they continued the leasing. So basically, he didn't want to wait. They said, we need other retailers before we're going to kick this building off. And he said, why? And they, they said, because well, we need the rent from other, we need other commitments. And he said, we'll just pay rent on all 10,000 square feet until you find the other people. And we, you know, we probably have 1,200 square feet in this building. And so when I first came in, I inherited this deal where we were taking on 10,000 feet worth, single, single tenant, small shelf space user. And they said, no, Ray, uh, Ray committed to the leasing of the entire space until we find other tenants. I'm like, for me, it was only done, our deals are $30,000 deals, $40,000 deals. All of a sudden, we're leasing 10,000 square feet, and I got to try and sell that, like pass that through our approval process and let them know how this came to be. And it was wild. It ended up playing itself all right, out all right, but we probably paid rent on that space for 18 months, two years before those other spaces got leased up. So, yeah, I remember that one pretty well. Wow. Did you have to like help the landlord find additional co tenants or? No, we put a bug in our broker's ear to make sure that they were bringing anyone forward that they could if something, if it did make sense. But no, they're a big regional player and they did a nice job leasing it up, but obviously probably wasn't top of their priority list if we were already paying rent on it. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. But again, one of those things you can do as a privately held company, you can get creative and make things happen that being a public company, you just couldn't do. Understand. Wow. That's an insane story. 
was not expecting you to go down the road. I always love asking that question because you never know what the answer is going to be from the other person on the end of the Zoom or one day when we get back to doing these things in person. Tell our listeners, I should say, and me for that matter, because I'm always trying to learn and get better. What advice do you have for someone who's been in the business five years or less that wants to get to a seat like you're in or, or similar to it? Say, if you can experience, if you can work with, we talked about calling everyone back, but just experience and getting on, whether it's the committees or more so the events and just putting yourself out there. I'm an introverted person. And so some of that stuff going on the road for the first time, it was challenging. When you don't know a market, when you're starting over, when you're going to, like, you may be great. And again, I worked in the Southeast for a lot of years and I was super comfortable going to those events, those ICSCs. You walk into a room and you know everyone, right? And then I transitioned back to Minneapolis or Midwest. And I'm not, I'm from here, but I never worked this market. And so it was like, you start all over the place. You start all over again. And walking into the first ICS, Midwest ICS, it was like I was first time on the job. And so you got to force yourself to make connections. It's a super friendly group. And you know this, people are more than happy to, to get you involved in things, and tell you their story and get you connected with people. Like the whole business is just based on connections. And so just finding whether it's brokers or landlords and just picking their brains and meeting people, it's the best part of the job but it can be intimidating. It's a tight-knit group at the same time. And you can feel like it's tough to break into some of those more regional groups in the industry. Any tactics or moves that you pull to get yourself outside that comfort zone and introduce yourself to people that you weren't planning to have to do, or especially for the introverted folks out there? Yeah, when you're there, just be there, travel. When you're on the road, and I know it's hard because we all got emails and phone calls and stuff piling up, but when you're there, Take advantage of being there. Don't race back up to your hotel room and answer emails and spend the time on your computer when you're there. Take full advantage of being there. And don't miss out on, again, the dinners, the happy hours, whatever that looks like. Because again, if you're just focused on doing the other side of the business, you're never going to experience things the way that they're meant to be experienced and make those connections if you're just if you're only happy and, uh, when you're on the road. Great advice. Okay, last question. It's a tough one. I ask it to everybody though, and you, you're no different. So you're obviously making quite the impact on the business. You've got this high-level job at a young age, by the way. Nate's not an older guy by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, he's, he's got the good looks to show for it, too. And then one day in the very distant future, after you've conquered the world, doing whatever it is that you decide to do for the rest of your career, you're going to decide to walk away and go sit on a beach and hang out. And when you do, it's going to be a big deal. Everybody's going to write about it, talk about it. And when those publications write that little article about your retirement off into the sunset, what do you want those articles to say about your legacy in the business? Geez, Aaron. Again, it's a good thing. It's a bad thing. I don't have many boundaries when it comes to my work life, my personal life. It's sort of all-encompassing into one. And so the people that I work with, my team here, the relationships I've built, over the years with brokers, it's like a, I think people are coming around to that work-life balance, especially over the last two years. And I see the people, like the really the good people in this industry have never had a hard time finding that balance because it's sort of all one bucket. And we sort of live this and breathe this. And it's, we work with our friends and that's the only thing we know. And so just the relationships, again, that's the key for me is not only in the industry, but with my franchisees, with my 
Break Clubs corporate or the Regis corporate when I was there. And just having those relationships is the biggest thing for me. The deals are the deals. To your point, like we've done so many deals with a thousand square feet. Very few of them stand out, but the relationships stand out. And so that's what matters the most. And that's why I'm in the industry. It's not, not a, yes, real estate's fun. I love real estate, but it's the relationships that keep me in it. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but something around those relationships and those friendships. That answer works well for me. And I think it's, it's a good one that had a lot of impact and a lot of meaning to a lot of people out there. Nate, as always, I appreciate the time. I appreciate you giving your perspective and wisdom and the motivation that anybody who wants to get to the top by doing it the right way with not a lot of jumps in between and providing the great moral compass that you have to show people that you don't have to screw anybody to get to the top. You've done it the right way. And it's been really fun to watch and be a part of it. And I'm honored and excited to be able to call you a friend and looking forward to doing a ton of deals with you. And and continuing to build our relationship. And I just can't thank you enough for joining the podcast as always. Well, thank you for having me and congrats to you on all your success. It's been fun to watch you over the last few years as well. Thanks for listening to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did in fact get some value out of it, let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts. 